and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. My name is Zach Groff, and I'll be your host today. And I have with me Dr. Joseph Piper. We're going to be answering some of your questions submitted by our listeners through a variety of means. And I'm excited because we have a number of really high-quality questions today. So thank you to those of you who are listening who submitted some of these to us. And if you have a burning question that you'd like to submit, just email us. You can email me directly at my seminary email address, or you can submit through the form at confessingourhope.com. Dr. Piper, would you please open us in a word of prayer? I will, Zach. Thank you. Great to be with you all today. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, we bless you and we praise your holy name. We thank you that you are the God of our salvation and the God who is light and whose light is life. We praise you for Christ Jesus, your Son, our Savior, and for the Spirit who's brought us into union with you and who teaches us from your word. We ask that you'll bless our program today. We confess that we can do nothing apart from you. So we ask that the Spirit will indeed illumine our understanding, help us to profit from this time together. We ask that you forgive us of our sins. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Can you give us an update a little bit more in depth than last time of your trip to Nigeria with Antiev and who Antiev is, of course, and everything that went on there? Karuk Antiev is a pastor in the NKST, which is a Reformed denomination in Nigeria, principally in the state of Benue, uh, which is uh, more or less a Christian state, and the Tief tribe is the the predominant tribe there, and they're more or less a, a Christian tribe. I met Antiev when I was teaching out west in the uh, 90s, and he was in our church. He had an MDiv, but he came to do an MA, and then I encouraged him to do a doctor of ministry under me so that he could go back and be more useful in his church. And God's greatly blessed his ministry. He was in the northern part, in the Muslim part of the country, suffered great persecution. In fact, his house and church were burned down. His children were hiding in a barn and witnessed the murder of some children of another pastor. After that, he has served his denomination as general secretary. He helped start a, uh, a university for the uh, NKST. And for the last number of years, has started and been working in this church in Makurda, Makurdia, which is the capital of Benway State. God's blessed the ministry greatly. He's got a number of very fine elders and deacons, and I think the congregation has grown now to about a thousand. So this was my third trip. When I go over, I, I do a, a lot of different things. Initially, I just worked at the church for Bible conference get to baptize children, and then do radio and television because of being a Christian state nominally. We have access. And so I, at that time, I thought I did one radio program and one television program that really go to hundreds of thousands of people. Those programs are English language uh, programs. At the church, I normally preach in English, and they translate into the dialect, although on the Lord's Day, there's usually an English language service as well. <clears throat> On my second trip, I realized that we needed to help them start working on economic development. I took a friend with me, had been a ruined elder in the church in California who knew Auntie Ed very well. 
who's an entrepreneur. And we went over, assessed things, and made some recommendations, not church-based, but Christian-based um, economic development. The elders would appoint the committee, and the committee would answer to the elders in terms of accountability, but the committee uh, ultimately would run these economic programs. We've tried to start a economic, uh, a home ec school, bought <clears throat> sewing machines and other uh, material for that and a farm, I was given a goat for performing a, a wedding, and we started building a goat herd, and we have now a number of goats, um, and we're hoping also the other part of that land to begin to start some kind of crops, and this would try to create uh, employment for people in the church. <clears throat> the other vision that Auntie have had was a Christian school, and so we laid the foundation for that three years ago, <clears throat> And that now is operating uh, primary, actually preschool through primary grade six. Uh, this trip was very different. Each one of them really is. But because the major airport is messed up in Abuja, which is the capital of the country, in the center of the country, I had to fly all the way to Lagos in the southwest and then up to Kaduna in the north in the Muslim area and then do a seven-hour van ride to go to uh, <coughs> so actually more of my time was spent in travel than actually in ministry on this trip. How many hours did you spend in travel? Uh, it was a good, uh, I calculated it once, uh, of course Greenville to Dulles or Newark and then uh, Newark to Frankfurt and Frankfurt to Lagos and Lagos, then another two hours north to Kaduna. So, you know, that was a, a good, on the clock, time I left here, it, I think it, by the time I finally got to where I was going was about two days. Coming home, it was actually worse because I flew to Istanbul. You can't get regular flights in and out now because of, of Lagos. So I actually flew to Istanbul. Kaduna to Lagos, spent nine hours in Lagos, and then to Istanbul, which was a long flight, then spent nine hours in a wonderful lounge in Istanbul. I really wanted to go into the city, but Dr. Kurto had encouraged me not to at this particular time because of uh, danger. Mm -hmm. And then Istanbul to uh, Newark, and then Newark home. So oh, yeah. it was a lot of, a lot of travel. <clears throat> but at, while I was there, it was very intense. <clears throat> Got in late, what it was Wednesday night, I did a um, three radio, recorded three radio programs uh, Thursday morning early at a tele, uh, no, the, just the three radio programs. Then uh, went to a day of prayer and fasting that had been called by the governor and I saw what was going on. I, I tried to slip out, was actually compelled to come in and sit on the stage with the other pastors. And I was there uh, for a number of hours, and it was mostly, uh, to put it politely, raving, char raving charismatics. Uh. Uh, and then we had our service that afternoon at 3.30. The next day, we uh, visited, which would be Friday, we visited the farm. And then the, the highlight of that day was visiting the Christian school which um, they tried to name it 
for me, and I did not allow that. So it is the Reformed Christian School of Benway, I think, or of McCurdy. <clears throat> and the students had a program for me, and I just it was delightful. And we're hoping to work with the school, uh, and I have a project, I think I mentioned last month, that we'll be trying to put together. My wife and I are going to sponsor one of the young boys. I was very impressed with him. And for less than $300 a year, we can sponsor one of these students. Wow. And we do a bit more than that. We can help raise the salaries for the teachers as well. We were also able, with some money that was given to me over there, to uh, start building a, a fence. The school does not have a proper fence. Some families hold off putting their kids there because of that. But that's that's exciting. I'm hoping that we're going to do a number of really educational developments. I've been working with one of our students, Michael Spangler, on <clears throat> starting and, and what a really reformed Christian classical school looks like. And we hope to, uh, we hope to build up that uh, as well. <clears throat> and then uh, another sermon that night. We also did a book launch. Uh, Ante have translated my uh, <clears throat> book on the, on the Lord's Day uh, into a teeth, and that was out as I was there, and so we did a big book signing and then the evening service. And then the other highlight was on the Lord's Day morning, communion service, and I think I served communion to 1,100 people. Now, you can go to my Facebook and uh, see some pictures that I posted there as well. But pray for this. It's, it, the dangers are increasing. There's a tribe called the Fulani. There are uh, Muslim nomadic herders who hate the teeth, and they've moved into... Benway State. They simply go where they want to go with their cows, but a number of them are carrying rifles provided by the Iranians and others, and as they want to, they kill and murder. So the state's trying to deal with this, but the all the police are controlled at the federal level, and so they're having to get cooperation from the federal level to deal with these uh, nomadic herdsmen as well. So that's the that and the poverty are the two main uh, difficulties that they're facing there. The temperature was up too. It was up around 100 degrees when you were there. Yes. Yeah. So just uh, for our listeners, put yourselves in Dr. Piper's shoes. Imagine uh, the the intensity that would have been. But also, I'm um, talking to Dr. P here at the seminary immediately after he got back, and in the time since, it is evident to all of us that the time was as much a blessing to him as it was to all of the, the dear saints to whom he was ministering there in Nigeria. So thanks, Dr. P. And, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll hear more about Nigeria from one of our students, Isaac Coco, who is from Nigeria and going back to be with his family for the summer before continuing his studies in the fall. So I guess at this point we will move into our questions that have been submitted by our listeners. And the first one is from William Tejeda down in San Antonio, Texas. William, thank you for your question. He submitted this through Twitter. And the question is, 1 John 3.22 seems to state that believers receive answers to prayer because of law-keeping. Not perfectly, of course. What does John mean? And what about the prayers of those who, for instance, blatantly break the Sabbath or any other law? Well, William, that's a, a complex uh, question, but very 
important. Well, let's read 1 John 3.22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And John, of course, is uh, building on the teaching of the Savior in the Gospel of John, where, again, he encourages us that... Uh, um, what we ask in his name, according to his will, that God does for us. There's a definite relationship between obedience and prayer. Peter tells husbands, maybe husbands and wives, but particularly husbands, if they don't treat their wives correctly, their prayers are going to be hindered. In Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And there we see that if we are practicing sin, that there's no way to expect God to honor our prayers. Uh, Proverbs 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So there's a definite relationship between a desire to obey God and boldness and effectiveness in prayer. And so if we're not seeking to walk in holiness, we have no ground to think that God is going to hear our prayer. Now, William expands that a bit, blatantly breaking the Sabbath or any other law. Anybody that blatantly breaks any of God's commandments uh, does not have any assurance of God hearing that them when, when they pray. It's, it's a very serious uh, principle. <laughs> it's what the psalmist also means by lifting holy hands. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 to lift holy hands uh, to God in prayer. And what so do you mean by blatantly breaking one of his commandments? That is knowingly and, and unabashedly breaking his commandments? Or does that include ignorant, like breaking them out of ignorance? I don't think it... It's breaking them out of ignorance. I think that uh, if we live in by the light that we have and we're not deliberately practicing sin, then uh, we're humble before God and he hears our prayers. If we believe the Bible teaches something and we say no to that, that's what I mean by, by blatant. Or if we are practicing a sin so the difference in wrestling with a sin and practicing a sin. So moving on to our next question. Thank you again, William. Our next question comes from Wyatt Finn in Brentwood, California. He emailed us this question. My wife and I are attempting to move to a Reformed church from a large non-denominational Baptist church. I have been moving in the confessional direction, but I don't think she is as convinced as I am about many confessional issues. <clears throat> and Wyatt lists a couple there for us. We have been pretty good about regular family worship, praise God. But how do I show her that I'm not just trying to add more, quote, things for her to do, end quote? And how do I show her that these are not strange things? I don't want to cause strife in our relationship. Now, I think in the context, you need to, we need to mention the things he mentions, and that is particularly Sabbath keeping and Reformed baptism and evening as well as morning worship. Why <clears throat> right, I appreciate your love and care. Uh, for your wife and your patience in moving uh, slowly with her, <coughs> your desire to uh, disciple her, <coughs> I would encourage you to take something like my book, 
which is uh, studies in the confession of faith. It's actually a discipleship book. And it's a combination of inductive Bible studies keyed to the Westminster Standards. It goes through all the doctrines and practices of a Reformed Christian. You can do that with her. The answers are in the back. And I think that is a way to help her uh, grow in these understandings. My wife was my fiance. Well, she wasn't my fiance. The woman I was courting would be probably far even beyond where your wife was. And I just taught her. And uh, didn't have this book, but gave her books to read. Uh, Bettner's Reform Doctrine of Predestination is very useful. Pink Sovereignty of God. Uh, On the Sabbath, I would recommend, again, either my book or Dr. McGraw's book uh, on the Sabbath. Um, And on uh, baptism, I think I might start her with uh, John Murray's little book or uh, a little pamphlet called William uh, the Baptist. So it's good to be uh, patient with her. Same with PM worship. Uh, that really is something that, um, I mean, that's kind of the first step you can take as the spiritual head. You, you know, it's good for your family to be in church morning and evening uh, in the presence of God in a unique way, hearing Christ in a unique way, in the preaching of his word. Um, if our heart is for God, then we, we want that. <clears throat> so, I would work with her, but I think that um, if if the church you want to take her to is a loving church that has good worship and preaching, <clears throat> it's not going to do her any damage uh, to be uh, in in that church and, and follow you in, in that regard. But you'll know her <clears throat> and know how um, quickly or slowly to move with her. But if you need to go more slowly, I would start with the discipleship book and spend the time with her studying that together. Wyatt, I hope that was helpful to you. It is uh, certainly to me. And now our next question comes from Iris Rudy from Williamsburg, Virginia. I met Iris at the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology just a couple weeks ago, and she poses this question to you, Dr. P. I think you might have some fun with this. Why are so many high-profile American churches, Presbyterian and otherwise, pastored by ministers from the UK. What is the benefit both ways to American congregations and these ministers from the UK? And she had also asked, are there any dangers present in these kinds of arrangements? Thank you, Iris. Interestingly, uh, providentially, we have a guest in our home right now, a very close friend of mine, Ian Hamilton, who's a Scotsman who has pastored the Presbyterian Church in England for a number of years. He's now moved back to Scotland. So i Discuss this a little bit with uh, him as well. Coming this direction, there's a couple of things. One is the celebrity approach to uh, church life. And so there are a few people who have come. It's not their fault that they're well-known, but I think they're sought out uh, because uh, they are well-known. And the second is, not that people realize this, but they are enticed by the British accent. Eric Alexander, who's a Scotsman, said that he could preach in Swahili to his congregation, and they would think he was the most wonderful thing in the world. That's a Scottish congregation. That's a Scottish congregation that's used to the Scottish accent, so they would like something different. So those those are a couple of the uh, 
of the uh, issues uh, there. And, and none of this is a second guess when a man seeks God's will or a congregation seeks God's will that he's leading. So I'm not casting dispersions on any particular uh, uh, ministry. I can think of churches that are high-profile churches that uh, because of who they are and because of their public ministry and responsibilities uh, believe they need um, a much more predominant minister for their ministries. And that's a, a decision that, uh, that, that Session uh, makes. <clears throat> now also, on the positive side, many of these brothers from Britain would be more experimental in their Christian Christianity and preaching than your, say, typical Reformed pastor in America. And by that I mean they deal much more with the heart, heart issues, uh, affections for God. And so I think Americans also respond well. Serious Christians respond well to that. On the other side, well, the advantages are huge. Um, the two that first come to mind is there's very few places if a man is a Presbyterian that he can minister in England in particular or Wales. Um, there are a few more advantages in Scotland, but Scotland is ecclesiastically a, a, a war zone. I mean, there's so much that's going on there. So, <clears throat> But particularly for the English, I've had friends who've come over here uh, because they were in congregational churches, and they wanted to be in a Presbyterian church. We've had two of our graduates from Wales who desired to go back and tried, uh, and this there were no opportunities uh, for them. doesn't always happen. that We've had our most recent British graduate get a call. <clears throat> but Presbyterianism is not very um, popular uh, in Britain, or, or Wales, uh, I think of a man that went to um, Proclamation Church. He was in a congregational church, and uh, he was really blessed to be able to go to a Presbyterian church for a period of time until visa problems caused him to have to uh, return. But now he's serving in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of England and Wales uh, in Cardiff. So that's one thing. <laughs> and the second is that for the most part, Take Northern Ireland, for example, where there's a very good denomination, but they pay poverty wages. And if a man has a if a man has a family, it's very difficult to rear a family on what they're paid. And this is pretty much true, not maybe as bad, but across the board. And so uh, these men are able to come over here and make a much better living uh, in order to uh, to care for, for their families in a way that. I believe before God they ought to. So that, that's the two <coughs> advantages uh, on their side. It does go the other way. We send some men to Britain, uh, but uh, not nearly the amount of men that probably have come over here. Yeah, there are dangers. I, I know of men that have gone to uh, good conservative churches in my denomination, men from Scotland and Northern Ireland. And they were frankly disasters. And they were only disasters because they didn't understand the culture. And so neither one of them was able to minister at a level of effectiveness 
Now, both of them have gone on elsewhere in the States, learned their lessons, and they're both now very effective pastors. But that initial baptism was difficult. Mm. And from, from what I understand, speaking with a friend of mine who's, who is in this, um, in this situation, he's come over from Scotland, well, actually from England, but he's Scottish, and he's uh, ministering in a church, and he said, you know, because of the smallness of the community over there in the UK, the, the Presbyterian and Reformed communities, particularly around London, he found that he was, he was kind of getting the same invitations over and over again, going to the same places with the same people. And so when he received a call to the United States, he and his wife prayerfully considered it and thought that it would be a fruitful ministry. He would, he would be exposed to a, a whole new group of people, and, and he would bring a freshness maybe that they were, uh, that they were calling him to bring uh, from the Word, of course, but just a, a different face and a different voice. But yeah. Thanks, Dr. P. I think we'll move on now to a question from Marshall from Greenville, South Carolina. And Marshall's actually moving to Greenville, having just accepted a job here. And, and he asked me this question at our prayer meeting at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church, I think, last week. And he asked, what is the difference between theological error and heresy? Are there different degrees in each category? Well, this is also a, a serious question. I would say there are different degrees in each category. All of us have some error in our thinking. Otherwise, we would be infallible. And I think as we interact with each other on minor issues, beginning there, we must hold our positions uh, with a spirit of humility. And even on more serious issues, when I pray for friends who are credo-baptist, uh, are exclusive psalm singers, I pray, Lord, if, if I'm wrong, show me. And if they're wrong, show them. Both of us aren't right. Both of us could be wrong, but both of us aren't right. And we then need to uh, be patient and love each other and, and study together. And even within, uh, there's certain issues, say, in worship. Uh, take the issue of choirs. Some that hold the regular principle think there should not be choirs, and some think choirs are okay by the regular principle. Again, we both can't be right, but we need to... Uh, respect each other. It's really not an issue to split a church over or to cause difficulties, but prayerfully to, to consider. So there's that level of error. And then, of course, the error between, say, church government or credo or infant baptism, um, things like that, I don't think any of those have any way of, of doing uh, serious spiritual damage. I, th I think that uh, the proper doctrines are for the well-being of the church. So, for example, I think Presbyterian government is not a mark of the church. I think a, an independent or an Anglican church can be a, a, a true church if it has the marks. But we would say that, that the church is better off if we're governed Presbyterianly. So within errors, there's obviously levels that will affect sanctification, uh, Packer points this out, I think, in the introduction to Death of Death and Death of Christ. He says that even Arminianism and evangelical Arminianism, a man-centered uh, faith, uh, is not a damning uh, error, but it will affect your sanctification. Now, with heresy, I think there are two ways to approach heresy. Sometimes the word is used in a confessional church that holds to a confessional standard. 
And if a person's teaching contrary to that standard, teaching contrary to the received doctrine of the church, I would call that heresy. Dr. Smith and I got involved in the thing, and I got um, lambasted for using that word heretic. Uh, but in fact, um, that's a proper use. But it's most often used for what we would call soul-damning uh, errors. And these would be the, the doctrines that deny the deity of Christ or uh, the necessity of Christ's atonement or justification by faith alone, the Trinity, um, and any form of liberalism. We don't, maybe you don't think about it, but liberalism is heresy. And I think Machen establishes um, that in his book on liberalism. It's another religion. And so even our friends that are in these mainline uh, Methodist and Presbyterian and Episcopal churches that don't hold to the Bible as the word of God and teach many forms of error, I would say those are heresy. Obviously, Roman Catholicism is heresy. Um, now, when I say that, there are true Christians in all those bodies, even the Roman Catholic Church, who are there in spite of what the church believes it holds to. Well, Marshall, I hope that will help. Uh, cl clarify <laughs> the issues. I think they're important for all of us. Thanks, Dr. Piper. Our next question also comes from uh, another friend of ours at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church who just moved to the area. His name is Chad Warner, and he's asked, what does Luke 16.9 mean? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. And he's, I think, quoting the NIV. Dr. Piper, what, what does that phrase mean? What is Jesus saying there? <laughs> it's probably one of the hardest passages in the Gospels to interpret. So in the context of uh, the parable that Jesus gives on the unrighteous steward, and <clears throat> the steward who is fired for mismanagement, and so he brings in his uh, boss's uh, creditors, and he cuts their bills anywhere to two-thirds to a half or whatever. And in verse 8, his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation of their own kind than the sons of light. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into your eternal dwellings. And I think basically he's challenging the Pharisees who... Uh, considered wealth and righteousness to be synonymous. And he says, if that's what you're committed to, then you're lining your bed in hell, that uh, you're not seeking those things that are most important. This one comes in from Jared Lowe in Winter Haven, Florida. <coughs> he emailed us directly, and he asks, what advice would you give to a new Presbyterian who is currently a member of a Southern Baptist church and pursuing theological education at an SBC university, but is going to be, quote, moving over, end quote, to Presbyterianism. Should I suspend my education until after I become a member of a Presbyterian church and have my call affirmed by the session? What are some other things that I should consider in making the transition? Jared, thank you. Um, I'm going to assume that by Southern Baptist University, you mean seminary, because the answer would, at this point, differ. I'll have to answer it both ways. If you're still doing undergraduate work, then yes, if you move into a Presbyterian church and have your gifts uh, tested there. 
If you're in seminary, I'm going to assume that you're in seminary because the church has recognized your gifts, and I would encourage you to transfer to Greenville Seminary tomorrow. <laughs> He's still working on his undergrad. He's still doing undergrad. Yeah. All right. But if a man is in seminary, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, all right. So if you do an undergrad, then yes, get into a church. Uh, don't suspend your education. It's not any problem going to Southern Baptist University. Keep pursuing your undergrad degree, but get into the Presbyterian Church. Let the elders know that you believe you've been called into the ministry and ask them to examine you, test you, test your gifts um, unto that end. But no, I wouldn't put my education on a hold at this, at, this, uh, at this point. What you want in terms of transition is to get into well-ordered Presbyterian church so that you will begin to understand what it's like to live in a well-ordered Presbyterian church. It's hard to get out of seminary and try to be a pastor in a well-ordered church having not experienced it. But saying that, I have to add, because they're not just hanging like fruit on a tree, we will have men come to us here who are not coming out of the best well-ordered churches, but they're four years in seminary. They're involved in local churches. We get them into internships. And one of the goals is so they can experience uh, what a well-ordered Presbyterian church is like. And we're blessed in the Greenville area to have a number of such churches. To summarize, no, get your undergrad degree, get into a church. If you want some recommendations on that, just send me an email privately, then start working with the elders and the presbytery to have your gifts tested, then come to Greenville Seminary. Thank you, Jared, for the question. Thank you, Dr. P, for the answer. Our next question comes from another Reformed Baptist, but this is not, uh, not a man who's at least hasn't indicated to me that he's uh, thinking about transferring into Presbyterianism, so to speak. But his name is Stephen Hughes. He's here in Greenville, South Carolina. He um, sent us an email having seen our post uh, retweeted by the Banner of Truth, and it's because, as all of our listeners, regular listeners know, we offer a $10 gift card to any, anyone who submits a question. We're still doing that at this point, and Stephen, you will get a $10 uh, gift certificate for asking your very thoughtful question. Um, Dr. P., how does Presbyterianism justify the practice of infant baptism from the New Testament, or is it impossible to do without a theological link to the Old Testament? Uh, let's take the last part of your question, and the answer is yes. It is impossible to do without a theological link to the Old Testament because, Stephen, you cannot begin to understand infant baptism without first understanding God's covenant. And to understand God's covenant, you have to understand the unity of the Bible. From Genesis 3.15, with the first promise of redemption, through Revelation, we've got one unfolding message of man forfeiting the garden, the presence of God, and all that God does to bring man back into his presence. Let's just take, he's exiled from the garden. What does God do? Eventually, he establishes a people and puts a tabernacle in the midst of them in order to dwell in their midst. That's kind of a phase. And then that's turned into a permanent temple throughout the rest of the Old Covenant. And then 
Christ tells us that he is the true temple and that he's come to dwell amongst men. And now by his spirit, he indwells us individually and his church. But the book of Revelation shows how all this is fulfilled. And we live then for eternity, the presence of the triune God in the city garden. So that's just one motif that runs through Scripture. But these motifs are tied together <clears throat> through the unfolding of covenants. From the uh, initial covenant with Adam <coughs> after the fall, to the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant in Christ, each covenant incorporates all that came before and advances the revelation to the next degree. So all that is to be said about the coming Messiah has been said through types and prophecies, through law and promise. And when Christ comes then, the ceremonial parts that all point to him are fulfilled in him and everything else remains. So you've got to understand the covenant. I'd start with a book like Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. So then as we do that, understand the link that is between the old and the new. The principle to keep in mind is when something is revealed in the old, if it's not repealed by fulfillment in the new, it remains. So we also have then in the covenant two sacraments, Passover and circumcision. We know that Passover was fulfilled and transformed into the Lord's Supper. Our Savior did that himself at his Passover meal. The last Passover became the first Lord's Supper. Baptism is then replaced by, excuse me, circumcision is then replaced by baptism. And that's also clear in two ways. Made clear in Colossians chapter 2, but also the meaning. People misunderstand circumcision and think it was a physical badge. Circumcision had exactly the same meaning of baptism. It was a sign of the necessity of regeneration, a sign of, of regeneration and being incorporated into the covenant people. So it becomes a badge because it's a sign of incorporation. But it was given to anybody who converted. And so when Gentiles men converted, they were circumcised like Uriah the Hittite and so many others that are mentioned in the Old Testament. So when you understand that circumcision and baptism have exactly the same spiritual significance, you then understand that circumcision was applied to infants because they were members of the church and had the promises of the covenant. And it's the same reason that we now baptize our infants. They are members of the church. They're recipients of, uh, they're heirs of the promise and that which is, is promised uh, in, the, uh, in the covenant. And we can find no reason why God would make the sacramental sign less broad than it was in the old covenant. And then we uh, see, for example, in Acts chapter 2, that the promise is to you and your children and as many as are far off whom the Lord shall call. And this is the promise that comes through baptism. And, and Peter says the promise is to you and your children and to the Gentiles. But that would imply children. Can you imagine the chaos in the church if the Jewish children, because they could be incorporated in the old covenant, 
could be incorporated in the new covenant, but the Gentiles were told, no, your children may not be incorporated. So then we have to deal with the question, are there any clear examples of infant baptism in the New Testament? Well, there are strong inferences. But in answering that, let me say in the first place that, yes, there are clear examples of credo-baptism. But why is that? This is a missionary enterprise. Even the Jews who were converted as they embraced Christ as their Savior would be baptized. No adult move into the New Testament church from the Old Testament church without baptism, and no Gentile coming in into the church would do so without baptism. So yes, we have these texts that emphasize uh, baptism along with repentance and faith. But we also have in the New Testament, and we read this in light of the Old Testament, a number of household baptisms. You go back to uh, the Old Testament, this word household included children. So it says that Jacob with his house went down to Egypt, numbered 70, and in that 70 were children in arms. So then Paul says in Timothy that an elder must manage his household well, namely having children in subjection. And so Paul is, is assuming there that we would understand that household includes children in that household. And I would encourage you to look at R.L. Dabney's article on baptism and his section there on household baptisms. And then we find a place like 1 Corinthians 7, where the apostle says that our covenant children are holy, uh, even the child of one believing parent. And that holy means they're federally Christian. They're in the covenant. And if they're in the covenant, we then should give them the covenant sign. We're not saying that they're reborn again, <coughs> but we're saying that God has included them and has precious promises, and we rear them then light of those promises. <laughs> and again, if you've not done so, I'd encourage you to start with John Murray's book uh, on, uh, on baptism. But thank you, Stephen, for a very useful question. And thank you, Dr. <coughs> P. Our next question comes from Jerry Diolio from New York, and he also uh, heard about the podcast from the Banner of Truth Twitter page when they retweeted um, one of our posts about the podcast. And he asks, a very broad question, is the church leaning towards cessationism, or is it just fighting against charismania? Whoa. <laughs> uh, Jerry, let me begin by trying to define some terms. Uh, cessationism is the position that the what we call the extraordinary gifts, such as those listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, were for the apostolic age <laughs> and were tied to the uh, unfolding of Revelation and were given to the church until the completion of Revelation. By Revelation, I mean all of New Testament uh, corpus of literature. So uh, prophecy, uh, tongues, revelations, uh, healings, gifts of faith, gifts of discernment. These were things that were all tied into the charismatic gifts 
and we believe were tied to the apostles in a couple of ways. In the first place, they were evidence of the truth of the apostolic gospel, Hebrews 2, for example, makes that very clear. Second, they could only be given by apostles. I think Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 1. He wanted to go to Roman church that had no apostolic foundation. He might impart to them some spiritual gifts. And that ties into what Paul says then in 2 Corinthians, the proof that he gives, because all these uh, false teachers are following Paul around, and they're saying that he wasn't really an apostle. And Paul answers that by saying the signs of a true apostle, this is be 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul's saying, you should know I'm an apostle because I have signs, wonders, and miracles. But then we also know the Corinthian church had these manifestations of signs, wonders, and miracles. So what's the difference? The only thing that could authenticate Paul then as an apostle, and not only did he have them, he communicated them to others in the church as they came into the church. So with the death of the apostles, uh, there's nobody to give these gifts to others because they're apostolic gifts. That also would explain why a few decades after the death of the apostles, these gifts would still be active in the church, just because people received them and because the canon had not been fully uh, compiled and they needed these gifts in that interim period. So most Protestant Reformed Christians since the Reformation have believed in uh, cessationism. Charismania is the kind of slang term that is used for people that are so preoccupied with these things that that's really all they think about or do. And that'd be everything from the person in your neighborhood insisting that if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit, to the other end of the spectrum, all of this health, wealth, and prosperity, which also is coupled with non-Trinitarian and non-grace theology. So the arguments on cessationism are not simply because of the health, wealth, and prosperity people. They are because we believe it's a biblical argument. On the other hand, um, we also will continue to oppose uh, these more uh, radical forms of the charismatic movement. I hope I understand your question, and if I don't, Jerry, uh, please write back to us. Our next question. At our congregation, breakfast or lunch items are frequently brought to church on Sundays by members who purchase the food from restaurants that day. Is it wrong to let my family partake in such foods? You know, this is really a very good practical question. I've been places where I've seen that one food item uh, came in that way. And if I knew it was the one food item, I wouldn't eat it. But sometimes the food item will come in in a box of a fast food place, but they actually bought it the day before. And so we have to be careful we don't always uh, just jump gun on these things. You know, I would say that if it's just things there that you can eat without eating the other, then I would try to avoid eating those things. But I think I first would sit down with the elders. And, and uh, I did this one time, and the issue was a bit different. My, my daughter was in a, yeah, a college that held to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they were making a trip overseas, and they were gonna fly on 
Sunbeam. We had worked hard first to convince her to go, and then to be, you know, and then she called, Daddy, I can't go. I said, why is that? She said, they're going to fly on Sunday. So I called somebody that was in charge, and I said, you know, I'm not judging your view, but in the first place, you are a college that holds the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we send our kids there on that basis. And I would ask that you would respect the consciences of those who cannot fly on the Lord's Day. So I'm not judging you, but would you please respect our conscience? And so that's how I'd approach the session. I would say, you know, recognize that you men don't uh, share our views, but our views are consistent with the, the uh, confession of the church. And so would you please, for the sake of our consciences, instruct people not to bring food purchased on the Lord's Day? At which point, if they brush you off in a non-pastoral manner, you have a Presbyterian course of action, and that is to take that, it's called a complaint, and you file that complaint according to the Book of Church Order. This is not schismatic. It's a provision allowed for, and you encourage, it's much better than leaving a church. You file the complaint with the session that you uh, your decision was wrong. Here are the reasons. Our confession states this. Uh, we're not asking you to adopt our views in your private practice, but we think church practice should always be consistent with the confession. If they still turn it down, you may then take that to the presbytery. And, and you simply, we're not asking, we're not judging people's private views. We're asking that what the church does, it does so according to the confession. That's what I would encourage you to do if you get a non-pastoral response uh, on that. Um, if they brush you off in a harsh way and you don't want to do the complaint, although I would encourage you to do so, then I would encourage you to try to find a church that held uh, more um, strictly <coughs> to the Westminster standards. But with the caveat but, of if that is the only Reformed church in the area, you don't want to end up doing more harm to yourself than good by, well, just generally speaking, by going, by uh, fleeing into um, um, a fundamentalist church or something like that, that keeps the Sabbath well, and compromises on other issues. Well, let's say, uh, and you and I might differ on this. Now, in this situation, I know it's not, but let's say that it is, but let's say there's a Reformed Baptist church. I would go to the Reformed Baptist church if they love the Sabbath. Oh, yeah, I'd be fine with that. I'm not saying okay. stay away from yeah. a Reformed Baptist church. I'm saying no. stay away from a, a, an out-and-out -out legalistic church that okay. may keep the Sabbath so, for wrong reasons. That's all. If you, if, you get, if you get brushed off, or even if you take it to press chair and nobody is in favor of you, then I would simply just tell the elders, <laughs> we love Christian fellowship, but <laughs> because of our consciences and how we want to rear our children, uh, we will not participate in the church fellowship meals, and then you keep peace that way. Yeah, that's easier. That's easier said than done. But I think that's good advice, and of course, gentleness in all things, because it is a an issue that people's tempers flare up over. Zach, I want to know how you handled it. How I handled it? Well, it, my issue was a little bit different. I don't know if you remember. I you were out of town, 
I think, traveling, and I ended up talking to Dr. Shaw and Dr. McGraw and Bill Hill about it last year. But it was a situation where my, my employer, which was a Christian organization um, oh. back up in Philadelphia, had a, a celebratory meal on a Sunday night that was I largely – yeah, largely staffed by volunteers, but they did hire a caterer to um, provide the food and cook everything and kind of lead all the volunteers in serving everybody. And I ultimately, what I did is I went to the meal and I celebrated with everyone. It was at a church. It wasn't in a, in a banquet hall or a convention space or something like that, but I didn't eat the food. Um, and it wasn't disruptive at all. You know, I was afraid I was going to end up disrupting things and, and whatever, but my boss said, listen, just come. I don't think it will be disruptive. And she was right. It wasn't disruptive, and I had a good time, and my presence was a blessing to those who were there, and it was a blessing to me to see what God was doing in that organization. And I just didn't eat the food because I didn't, I didn't want to you know, go against my conscience and having that person work on the Lord's Day. And we have one more question, Dr. P, and we got time to answer it. Because it's a straightforward question. It's from Davy Quaresma down in Rio de Janeiro. And he asks, does the first edition of the Westminster Confession of Faith defend a theonomist doctrine? Uh, the answer is uh, no, Davy. The, uh, I don't think the language was changed at all between the uh, initial confession, which I have in the Free Presbyterian Church form, the chapter on law, chapter 19, and what's in our more modern Presbyterian uh, confessions. It's uh, paragraph 4, chapter 19. To them also is a body politic. He gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. And so what our fathers believed, what Calvin believed, and what I think confession continues to be consistent is that as a judicial set of laws, uh, those laws have expired. But in those laws are moral principles. That's the principles of equity. They apply in the first place to the church. So the church would practice excommunication where the judicial law put people to death. But we also look for those principles in our civil conduct. So in the old covenant, on the flat-roofed houses, you built a, a little wall because that was a patio and it was to protect people. And the, one of the principles of equity would be that you, if you have a swimming pool, you put a fence around it. Or Paul will draw out principles of not, uh, not uh, having mixed uh, <coughs> cloth garments or not plowing with a donkey and a mule that were not unequally yoked. And he, he takes the moral principle there. Uh, and so there's a lot of that, and we should work more on what some of those principles of equity are. And then also Calvin would say in the last of the Institutes that when a general law sanction paralleled a biblical law sanction, it would be wise for the magistrate to continue it. So death penalty for rape. Uh, was often in the general cultures that didn't have the Bible as well as biblical culture. Calvin would say the principle of equity then is that, yes, we would apply that law. So, uh, and that's what, that's the position I think that moderate theonomists would take. They're not looking for a tit for tat. Uh, 
carryover, but for the principle of equity. Thanks, Dr. P. And thank you for the question, Davi. I hope that was helpful and that helps you to answer some of your friends that maybe take a different view. That concludes all of our questions for today. But before I let everyone go, I do want to highlight just a couple of things coming up here at the seminary. First of all, and, and for, foremost in our mind, is we have our commencement uh, service next Friday evening, uh, May 19th, at Fellowship Presbyterian Church here in Greer. And that's starting at 6 p.m. It is open to the public. We would love for any of our local friends to come and to celebrate with us and the nine men who are graduating with their families as we... Um, you know, tearfully send them off to whatever the Lord has for them next. And, you know, this particular class is going all over the country and um, even internationally serving the Lord. And we're, we're grateful for these men and their time with us, even as we, you know, look forward to the fall when we have another crop of men coming in. I think we're hoping to simulcast the uh, exercises. Oh, great. Uh, uh, I don't know... Uh, what the final word on that is, but uh, I do know that our media guy was working with the church to see if that's possible. And in particular, we're going to have an excellent uh, sermon from Neil Stewart. We'll, we'll let you know online and through our Facebook account uh, if it's going to be simulcast, but we are, we are working to do that. Good catch, Dr. P. Thank you for bringing that up. And a couple other things we have are denominational breakfasts coming up this summer. Dr. Pipe and I will be at the Pre uh, PCA General Assembly in Greensboro, and we're having our breakfast uh, Wednesday morning of that week. And then also Doug Watson and Dr. Tony Curta will be at the OPC General Assembly um, leading a breakfast, giving updates about the, se the seminary to those who are interested. We'll be at the Banner of Truth Conference, and I've been in touch with Pat Daly there about setting aside a room for lunch or some other arrangement that we might fellowship together and give an update about the seminary to attendees. Um, and we have our pastor's um, summer institute coming up at the end of July into August. Dr. Piper will be going through and examining 10 sermons from uh, prominent Reformed preachers in history and evaluating them along the guidelines offered by R.L. Dabney and Evangelical Eloquence. So if you are interested in those things, please go to gpts.edu or email us for more information. We would love to have you uh, with us if you're able to be there. And in any case, thank you for joining us for this edition of Faith and Practice.